Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is great to be back with you today. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this conversation. Today, I am really excited to be sitting back down with Brian McLaren to talk about his newest book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Now, it's a funny title and really brings to mind uh, the beginnings of a really good joke, which is really Brian's intention from the get-go. I read this book, I guess, back in February or March of this year, and ever since then, I've really looked forward to being able to sit down with Brian and hash out some of the concepts that he talks about in this book. We're going to address a lot of questions, mostly surrounding how to maintain your Christian identity in a multi-faith world without either losing that identity or without entrenching yourself in that identity so much that it isolates you from people of other religions. We're going to ask questions today like, is it possible to be both faithful to the Christian faith and charitable to other faiths? Um, Are we, as Christians, are we to seek to convert other people to the Christian religion? Just a lot of really fascinating questions and a lot of um, ideas and concepts that I think could be groundbreaking in understanding uh, interfaith relationships. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this. This is probably going to be an episode that generates a lot of conversation. So if you've got your pen and paper handy, uh, write down some of those questions that come to you as you listen to this episode. I just uh, hope you can keep an open mind and, and just keep an open heart to the things that Brian has to say. And whether or not we agree at the end of the day, I just hope that we can find that place of maintaining a Christian identity that is both charitable to other people and yet faithful to the way of Jesus. So hang on tight and get ready for a great, great conversation with Brian McLaren. Well, folks, I am very, very pleased to be joined once again by Brian McLaren here on the podcast to talk about his brand new book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? And Brian, I have to read the title every time because if I don't, I'm going to get somebody out of order. So (laughs) welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you back with us. Thanks, Ray. It's great to be with you again. So to start out, I guess the obvious question is, where did this title come from? Because <laughs> it's such a such an ironic title and um, yeah. kind well, of hard to imagine. So, well, we we um, as I was talking with my editors, you know, about what the title should be, and we went through a couple of different ideas. We we wanted something that w- evoked a little bit of humor because, uh, as you know, very often in the world of religion, people get so serious that uh, their seriousness. Uh, makes them more tense and less able to change the dance, if you know what I mean. Mm, Um, mm. And and then uh, with this title, we also wanted to evoke the idea of our, the founders of our different religions uh, actually being together and doing something together. And because I I think 
just about everybody who knows anything about any of these uh, these four men knows that they would treat one another better than their followers have often treated one another. And so if we could just start following our founders, we'd be uh, a lot better off than if we're following our fellow followers. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess one of the obvious questions with the title is, What's the answer? Yeah. Well, <laughs> or I, what's your favorite answer? Because you give a lot in the book. Yeah, I think I put about five answers in different footnotes in the book. But so my favorite is, why did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad cross the road? To get to the other. Mm. And, and, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize is that each of those four, and we could add and talk about leaders in Hinduism and leaders in Native American religion and, you know, in Sikhism and so on. But these four, uh, they all were people who lived in, in religiously conflicted contexts. Obviously, Jesus was a Jew. People have to remember he wasn't a Christian. There was no such thing as Christianity. Uh, he was a Jew. But the Jews were living under the domination of an occupying regime, the Romans. And there were many different religious uh, uh, communities around them. They're surrounded by the Samaritans, for example, and the Sidonians. And so Jesus lives in a religiously pluralistic context. And we actually have a lot of data from his life to see how he treats the other. Uh, people, a, a lot of uh, Christians don't realize that Muhammad, <laughs> Muhammad didn't grow up in a Muslim country, you know. Uh, <laughs> Muhammad grew up in, at the edge of the Roman Empire. And in the beginning of the seventh century, uh, the Roman Empire uh, controlled all of the lands around, uh, you know, to the west of Arabia. And, uh, and in Arabia itself, there were many different religions. Each tribe basically had its own religion. So Muhammad grew up in a religiously plural context. He saw the corruption and the greed that was associated with religion. Um, there were Jews in Arabia, and uh, there were Christians who were affiliated with the Roman Empire, Roman Catholic Christians. And then there were other Christians who the Roman Catholics considered heretics. And Muhammad had fascinating relationships with all these different people. Um, even Moses, people often don't think about the fact that Moses uh, was a, a son of a Hebrew slave who then was adopted by the Egyptian nobility that were oppressing the Hebrew slaves. So talk about a religious identity crisis. <laughs> and then he, go, he eventually has to choose sides between the two, uh, his two religious identities. And when he chooses, he's rejected by both hmm. and then ends up out in, the, out in the wilderness and there marries a woman whose father is the priest of yet another religion. So, <laughs> you know, all of our religious leaders have a great deal of experience in, um, in religious pluralism. You know, it's funny you should say that about even even the fact that Muhammad didn't grow up in a Muslim country. What's so crazy, Brian, is I wonder how many people have actually stopped to ever have that thought, you know, right. or that Jesus wasn't a Christian or that Paul wasn't really a Christian. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing how we don't really take the time to actually think these things through. You start out the book really talking about how Christians have an identity crisis um, and how that identity crisis really finds itself in a duality of conservatism and liberalism with the one being um, conservatives, which is where you and I, that's where our tradition, uh, what we grew up in, really having a strong, hostile identity where we're strong in our in our doctrinal purity, so to speak. But simultaneously, that causes us to be hostile to others that don't identify in that same way. But how on the other side of the coin, 
um, we have kind of a, a liberalism within Christianity that has a weak and benign identity, maybe as a reaction against that strong, hostile identity. Yeah. The idea that, um, that maybe we need to let go of our doctrine, let go of our distinctives and really just try and avoid hostility altogether. But yeah. you really propose a third option. Could you maybe talk about these two identities? Sure. Where you see the problems and, and your plan for a third option? Sure. Yeah. Well, first, uh, uh, Ray Bourne, I should say that it, it becomes quite interesting when you get experience with other religions and you realize that there is a similar struggle in Judaism. There's a kind of strong and hostile Jewish identity. You see it in the settlers in Israel who are... Uh, invading and colonizing the lands of the Palestinians, you, you, you realize that, uh, uh, that there's not only violence uh, instigated by Palestine, some, a very small minority of Palestinians, but there's violence instigated by this extremist, hostile form of Judaism. Uh, but then on the other side in Judaism, there's a liberal kind of Judaism that, uh, that, that uh, tries to reduce that hostility and becomes... Uh, somewhat secularized. They're, same thing in Islam, same thing in Hinduism. But in, in the Christian community, um, a, a lot of us really were presented with this, uh, I think, two unacceptable alternatives, a strong Christian identity that is very committed to people on the inside and, uh, and not very pleasant to people on the outside. Now, of course, we on the inside think of ourselves as pleasant. We love them. We say we love the sinners, but we hate the sin. Um, we love the people, but we hate their false religions. Well, a Christian could imagine if if an atheist said, you know, to you or me, uh, oh, listen, I love you. I just hate Christianity. You know, mm. we're not going to say, oh, well, OK, we could be friends. You know, my religion isn't that important to my identity. You, as long as you like me, I don't care what you think of my religion. No, we're so committed to our faith that if a person hates our faith, we don't want them to like us, you know. Mm. Um, uh, and and so that that strength with hostility is very very familiar to a lot of us. And and again, though many of us, all we think of ourselves as is good people who love God and are faithful. Uh, but uh, our Muslim or Jewish or agnostic or pagan neighbors. I, when I say pagan, I don't mean that as a slur. I mean people who that's their religious commitment. You know they they experience us. They experience our hostility. Um, and and um, uh, and, and then this uh, opposite extreme, uh, I think a lot of people today who are identifying as the nuns, um, spiritual but not religious and so on, many of them are people who are trying to distance themselves from Christian hostility. Um, but, uh, you know, when you see those two alternatives, I think it opens up two other alternatives. One is something right in the middle that's a little bit strong and a little bit hostile and a little bit weak and a little bit benign. You know, um, it sort of tries to play the middle. What a pureed I, version, I guess. Yeah, that's right. That's right. A kind of like uh, half calf. <laughs> um, but I, I'm advocating another option, and that is an option that says, no, we need strength of identity, but we need something even better than being tolerant or benign. And the word I'm using for that is benevolence or kindness. And I think it's possible, although hard for many people to imagine, to have a Christian identity, the stronger you hold it, the more deeply committed you are to it, the more benevolent you'll be to people of other faiths or, or no faith at all. 
And uh, but to get from here to there is going to require some work. I think there are reasons why strength of commitment usually goes along with hostility. And we're going to have to deal with those those causes. I think your book is a long way in in doing this work um, in really unearthing and maybe laying the groundwork for this project, because I think you've really done a masterful job of really laying out a blueprint of at least where to get started. Well, thanks. Um, you, in, in that hostile identity, you talk about kind of the us, them mentality. And one of the things that you said, um, in the book that I had never actually realized that I just thought, wow, that's such an interesting insight is the fact that the word hospitality, um, or, or excuse me, hostile and host yeah. actually have the same root word. Yes. Um, and that, and that really what this, uh, strong benevolent relationship or identity is going to look like is for us to have a strong sense of hospitality to the other. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, um, if, if you go back to the middle ages, where the roots of our word host, uh, come from, I I guess there's a Latin word hostess, but, uh, the, um, uh, imagine yourself in a, in a home out in the country and someone knocks on your door you, you don't know if this is a robber trying to gain entry to, to rob you, or is it a stranger in great need who needs your help? So when someone knocks at your door, you have to make a decision. If you open the door and welcome the person in, you become a host, and your home becomes a hostel, H-O-S-T-E-L, and you provide hospitality, and your house might become a hospital you know, to help that person in need. But if you keep the door locked and tell the person to leave, um, you're assuming the person is hostile and you're responding in a hostile and unhospitable way because you don't trust them. Well, uh, I think what what we've seen in the Christian community in recent years is, uh, well, actually, not just in recent years. We've seen it for a long time. I was just reading uh, another book on a similar subject by my Muslim friend, Ibu Patel, called Sacred Ground. And Ibu tells the story how I believe it was in 1750s, uh, before New York was called New York, it was still called New Amsterdam. A Quaker came to New Amsterdam and the mayor of the city said, Quakers are not allowed in our city. Hmm. Uh, and he crossed the East River, went over to Long Island and came to the town of Flushing. And there the mayor said, we have to decide, are Quakers allowed here in uh, in Flushing? And they they wrote, the city council wrote something called the Flushing Remonstrance, which was one of the first expressions of religious tolerance and pluralism and liberty in the United States. And he said, if you're a Quaker, if you're a, they they didn't use the word Muslim then, he said, if you're a Turk, if you're a Jew, you're welcome here. Um, But, you know, in in Christian history, uh, people don't realize uh, how much inhospitality there has been, uh, even among different forms of Christians. We think about Protestants and Catholics killing each other. Mm -hmm. We think about about the Puritans and uh, the the Mennonites and so on. So we have this long history. uh, And, and, uh, you know, we normally don't like to look at the dark side of our history, but if we do, uh, it, it really it really sobers you and makes you think, do we want this religion to have the same kind of inhospitality toward the other over the next 2,000 years that it has too often had over the last 2,000? Mm-hmm. You said something in the context of talking about hospitality that 
I, I'd never really thought about before. You know, there's a tendency for, I think, people like me that are that are really on the quest along with you for a new kind of Christianity, there's a tendency to almost scapegoat um, the people that are strong and hostile mm-hmm. and to just look at them as hateful people or people that have all, always have a bone to pick. But you said something that really um, resonated with me in that often it's not what we hate or what we're angry with that, that is so dangerous, but it's actually what we love. Yeah. And can, can you talk a little bit about that sure. and explain that to our listeners? Yeah. Um, in fact, when I was doing research for the book, uh, this was one of the the big insights. I did a lot of reading in the whole area of religious violence. Obviously, in, in this decade, we have been thinking a lot about, about religious violence. And um, there was a, a scholar at Georgetown University, I believe his name is Ariel uh, Gluklik. And uh, he says, uh, he says that people are driven to religious violence, not necessarily because they hate anybody, but because they love their own community and they perceive their own community to have been threatened or insulted by uh, another community. So it's out of loyalty to us and love for us that people strike out against them. Now, I'm sure sometimes there is, you know, hatred and animosity, but I think this is really worth paying attention to. Um, you know, for example, in the Christian community here in, in the United States today, I, I've, you know, I, I've been involved in a lot of the controversy over human sexuality. And I, I, I've had a number of people tell me something like this. They say, and these would be conservative evangelicals from a background similar to mine. They've said, you know, I've never really even thought about the issue of homosexuality. I've never really even thought about what it would be like to be gay. All I know is my grandparents can't stand gay people. My parents can't stand gay people. The people in my church can't stand gay people. And they can't stand sympathizers to gay people. And so if I'm going to be loyal to my parents and my grandparents and my church, then I have to share that loyalty. And so it's this love and loyalty for the us that sometimes people don't even realize that that other people are suffering as a result. And so then you expand that and you imagine Christians being loving to their love toward whatever they understand Christianity to be. They end up unintentionally insulting and humiliating Muslims or Jews. And then you imagine those Muslims or Jews taking that offense up because they love their religion. And then, Hmm. you know, so it's, it's not hard to imagine how our loves turn into hostility. I think you, I think you saw that just what, um, the last three weeks or four weeks in the, with the U S diplomat being killed over the crazy DVD that, that, uh, that, that group put out, uh, you know, it seems to me that it was kind of a, you know, we're, we're rallying to the cause of Allah type thing that we, you know, Allah has been transgressed and we love him too much to, to let him suffer this, um, character assassination. So, I think that's, you know, a perfect example of what you're saying. Uh, one thing that you said that, that I found really interesting as well along these same lines was that um, it's often not our differences that really lead us into conflict, but it's our similarities. And, you know, for many of us, we always think, well, I'm so different than a Muslim or I'm so different than a Hindu. But you say that at the root of it is a, is a striking similarity that re- really leads us all into conflict. Talk about that similarity. Sure. sure. Uh, well, could I talk about the differences for a minute first? Um, oh, sure. Right? Absolutely. Because I, I really think this is worth talking about. Um, 
you know, a lot of us Christians uh, uh, are led to believe that all religions are trying to answer the same question. And so that our differences are different answers to the same question. So we, we Christians, the, the question that all religions are trying to answer is, how do you go to heaven when you die? And we Christians answer that through faith in Jesus Christ. And Muslims answer that in a different way. And Jews answer it in a different way. And Hindus in a different way. But the truth is, uh, that's not the primary question that every religion is asking. Uh, for example, a Buddhist would never, that's just not the question they're asking. How do you go to heaven when, when you die? The question a Buddhist is asking is a question about how do you relieve suffering? How do you learn to reduce desire so that you will reduce suffering? Um, uh, how do you increase compassion for all sentient beings? You know, the, that's a different set of questions. Uh, and um, uh, uh, one great Christian theologian says it this way. He says that our religions are not just different. In many ways, they're incommensurable, meaning they're, they're really asking different kinds of questions. Hmm. And once we allow that to be true, it, it puts us in a different situation uh, in trying to understand them. Now, probably the two religions that are most similar are Christianity and Islam in this way, because traditional Christianity, traditional Islam are really grappling with the question, what happens after you die? Um, I personally think we Christians got off on the wrong track in becoming so obsessed with that question. And then I don't think it's a surprise that Muslims did because, uh, you know, Islam develops in the seventh century. Uh, and in some ways it develops in dialogue with uh, Roman Christianity. Um, but so, so I think we, it's really worth sort of marinating in our differences and, and um, realizing that they're actually far more profound than uh, we often realize and that they don't, when you think about it that way, you could say, wow, I'd like to understand what Buddhists have to say about desire and suffering. You know, yeah. suddenly it's something interesting. And a Buddhist might say, well, I'd really like to understand about uh, loving your neighbor as yourself and about doing unto others as you would have them do to you. So, so suddenly our differences become gifts that we can offer each other. But my big surprise in my research came from uh, a Catholic theologian named James Allison. And he is one of the main theological dialogue partners with uh, an anthropologist named, a uh, French anthropologist named René Girard. Which we've uh, talked about a lot on this podcast. Yes, we've done yes. a whole lot on mimetic theory on here, so uh, people should be familiar with him. Fantastic. Um, and James Allison said this: uh, If you give people a common a common enemy, you give them a common identity. Mm. If you take away their enemy, you take away the crutch by which they know who they are. Mm. And when I read that, it just like fireworks went off because I was realizing as I was grappling with the subject that the issue of identity was really key. Well, the, here's the irony. When I look at the way Christians build strong Christian identity through building hostility toward the other, and then I look how Muslims build strong Muslim identity by building hostility to the other, and the way Jews and the way atheists suddenly you realize in this one fatal way, we're all so similar. Mm. We know who we are by 
setting ourselves up in opposition to the other by saying, in essence, there's room in the world for people like me. There shouldn't be room in the world for people like you. Hmm. Boy, that's uh, that creates a very different, very difficult and conflicted world. And that's to me, that goes to the heart of things that we have to pay attention to. You know, it really is. A, it's a scary thing that in order to know who we are, we have to have an enemy. It's almost like you wonder sometimes in the not just in the religious realm, but also in like the political arena and things like this. What would it be like if we didn't have an enemy? I mean, would half of us even know who we were? It's just oh. so it's so ingrained into who we are. You said something, though, that I, I had never I've read the book twice and I did not even this is just something that's really um, just kind of a mind bender right now, the way you said that a moment ago about other religions and how they're asking different sets of questions. And therefore, when you begin to delve into some of these different teachings, whereas we would almost look at it as unfaithfulness to Jesus. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's no different than many Christians getting involved in, say, politics or anthropology or science. It's that they're they're asking different questions and therefore it's, you know, I've never thought of it like that. Like you could almost, you could almost delve your hands into all these different things at the same time and really not at all have a con- conflict of identity. And I'd never seen that before. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the things that happens is, you know, because we're all human beings and we have a lot in common, you, you seldom find something that is dealt with in a religion that is not even touched in by another religion. L- let me give an example. That issue of desire that's so primary, the relationship be- between desire and suffering. I mean, it's a, it's a profound psychological and anthropological and philosophical insight that uh, Siddhartha Gautama had uh, in, uh, in the ancient world. Uh, well, you do see that idea come up, for example, in the book of James. Why are there wars and disputations among you? Isn't it the desires that are uh, you know, at work in your members? You want and you cannot have, and so you kill to get it. You know? so, um, so James is uh, you know, dealing with a similar reality, but it's a, it's, you wouldn't say that that's the primary focus of the Christian faith. And, but you could say it's one of the primary interests in Buddhism. So if you come along with a tradition, if we came along with a Christian tradition that had been meditating on James chapter four for centuries and centuries, we'd assume we might have something to learn, you know? And I think the same could be the case there. Wow. That's really good. Very profound. Um, at this point, there were, one thing I was doing as I was reading the book, I kept noticing these questions that you would ask. And I thought to myself, gosh, I would love to actually ask these to Brian <laughs> and see what kind of answers he would give. So uh, we're going to do our lightning round here. I okay, guess. <laughs> no, take, as, take as long as you want to. I'm just kidding. It just, I'm a, I'm a cheesy game show watcher. So I had to throw <laughs> that in there. Um, some of the questions that you, I, I had about three or four questions that really, as I read the book, I thought, gosh, I really... I would like to hear you talk a little bit more about this. Um, The first one, you said, how do we as Christians faithfully affirm the uniqueness of Christ without turning that belief into an insult or a weapon? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, as you know, uh, in the book, I I have a long section on Christian doctrine. And and, um, 
my belief is that our, our doctrines are sound and good, but that we've learned to hold them in an unhelpful way and that we need to reformulate a lot of our key doctrines, not by throwing them away, not by watering them down, but by di- rediscovering them uh, in, in a new light. Um, and so many of our problems regarding the uniqueness of Christ and the uniqueness of, of the gospel are built on assumptions that I think we have to question. For example, we, we took on board early in Christian history, you know, certainly by the fourth century, uh, a number of ideas that I think are much more at home in Greek and Roman philosophy than they were in the mind of Christ or in, in the Jewish mind. And one of them is this idea of perfection. And it's this idea that God is perfect uh, and that perfect, and there's a whole set of definitions of what perfect means. Uh, and, and in Christian theology, I'm sad to say, a lot of those definitions come from Plato. They don't really come from uh, Abraham, for example. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, Plato's great, but it's, you know, I, I didn't sign on to be a Greek, uh, a, a, a <laughs> Platonist Christian. I signed on to be a follower of Christ. And, um, uh, and, and if God is perfect in this understanding of perfection, then God is necessarily possessed by a perfect hatred for anything that is imperfect Mm. and uh, that God must punish or destroy anything that's imperfect. Otherwise, God is not truly perfect. Um, Well, that doctrine leads to all kinds of trouble, I think, or that understanding leads to all kinds of trouble. I think a much more biblical way of expressing it is to say that God is perfect in the sense that there are no flaws in God, but God is even better than perfect. God is good. Mm. And, and good, Hebrew good, I think, is better than Greek perfect. And good means, among its many qualities, abounding in compassion, abounding in understanding. So in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve do wrong, God doesn't torture them and destroy them. True, they're banished from the garden. There are consequences for their actions. But God immediately makes promises to them. God's faithful to them. God helps them. God seeks them out. You know, Cain does the worst possible thing. He kills his brother Abel. Hmm. God is faithful to Cain. God even protects Cain as a murderer. So the perfection of God that we see in the book of Genesis is not a perfection that makes God hate and destroy anything when it falls from perfection, but rather it's a compassion that can, that's faithful to people no matter what. Uh, now, I have no idea how I got onto that subject in relation to your question. <laughs> oh, that was a good rabbit trail. <laughs> yeah. Just to let you know, we do own the domain rabbittrailpodcast.com. So you're right at home. You oh, are right fantastic. at home right now. <laughs> well, I, I don't there, but what was your original question? Um, just, just talking about how do we faithfully affirm the uniqueness of Christ without turning that belief into a weapon against others? So all, that was a long rabbit trail to say that affirming the uniqueness of Christ might require us to redefine it from some of the ways we've defined it. Mm. But if what, if what we want to, but here's what I want to say about Jesus. Uh, God so loved the world that God gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have life, eternal life of the ages. Now, what does that say? It says, God loved the world. God didn't hate the world and want to destroy it. In fact, God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved through him. So God gave Jesus to the world 
as a gift and that that gift would save the world from from condemnation and destruction and so on. Well, I, I, I can believe that and still have a completely benevolent understanding toward the other. Uh, I, I can believe that Jesus is unique. I can believe that Jesus has revealed God to humankind in a way that no one else has. Uh, that, that, that doesn't cause a problem at all, especially when I go to my friends of other faiths and I don't hold out Jesus as a threat Believe in him or God will torture you forever. Believe in him or, uh, you know, will uh, make it really difficult for you to live in America. Uh, You know, all that sort of garbage. But I I bring Jesus as a gift. You know who who taught me about this, uh, Ray, was my Buddhist friends uh, and my Jewish friends. But let me talk about my Buddhist friends. Uh, They always love to tell me stories of the Buddha. Now, they don't believe necessarily. I mean, some Buddhists believe in a sort of a God, but a lot don't. Um, But they do believe that the Buddha is a gift for everybody and has Mm -hmm. wisdom for everybody. And so they want to share with me the teachings of the Buddha, the stories of the Buddha, the insights of the Buddha. And if I accept those, they're really happy. If, if I told them I wanted to become a Buddhist, that'd be fine with them. But I've never had any of them threaten me if I didn't, you know. Hmm. Um, and I, I just think, what would happen if we offered Jesus to the world that way? Um, now, I actually do believe there are times for warnings um, and, and so on. But that's not the same as a threat. So hmm. anyway. Yeah, just, just out of curiosity, just to clarify on that question, and, and we'll be revisiting this topic a lot because the missional, to me, probably the most challenging part of your book is the missional section. I'm sure that's probably the one you've had the most pushback on, if I had to guess. Is, am, I, am I right in saying that? Uh, you know, uh, a little bit, but I, okay. I'm a, I imagine it will come. You're right. <laughs> well, it's true. It's only been six weeks or so. <laughs> and you probably don't read all the Amazon reviews either, much to your uh, much to your good. <laughs> um but in clarifying that, you know, you, you were talking about John three sixteen, and then a little bit later it goes on to say that those who don't believe in the Son are condemned already. Yes. That if there's almost this either or, either you believe in the Son and have life, or you don't believe in the Son and you're, you're condemned. How do you fit that into, that, sure. into sure. that answer? It's a great question. Well, first of all, I wouldn't assume that condemned means be sent to hell. Right, uh, sure. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, John never once mentions hell. So what does condemned mean? Well, condemned means to declare somebody to be in the wrong. Mm. Uh, and, um, so, uh, and, and so J- John doesn't say whoever does not believe, uh, you know, uh, will be thrown into eternal torment. He says, um, it, it, and he doesn't say this will happen in the future. He says they're already in the wrong. And so uh, what, what I would say is, let's look around us. We see people killing each other. We see people hating each other. We see people uh, self-destructive, environmentally destructive, socially destructive, economically destructive. Uh, n- no question, the world is condemned already. It's a mess already. And uh, I, I don't see too many people trying to say it's just fine, you know. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, uh, so, uh, so God doesn't have to send the son into the world to condemn the world. Uh, God sends the son into the world so that it might be saved, set free, liberated, taken from it. It's set on a better course. And uh, I think that's happening. I mean, we've still got a long way to go, but I, I think it's happening. Um, you know, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, they, 
they, when they talk about uh, the way Jesus saves, uh, their primary focus is not uh, Good Friday and it's not even Easter. Their primary focus is Christmas because the understanding they have is that in the incarnation, Christ, God in Christ enters humanity, not just one human body, but all humanity hmm. and enters space and time and matter and energy, enters the whole thing. And their idea is that, look, if God has entered into something, it's basically doomed to salvation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> and, um, and, and not only that, but in the incarnation, God is taking the world into God's own self and identity. Mm. Um, so the only way it's hopeless is if God himself is defeated. So um, all that's a way to say that I, 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 I think there's, there are many ways to hold on to in even more deep ways to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior that don't require that kind of weaponized uh, faith. Yeah, it's good. It's good. You uh, you talk in the book about your first encounter um, with a Muslim, a little boy and, and his mom, and just a beautiful story. Loved reading about that. Um, and, and one of the quotes that you said that I want to mirror back to you and ask you about, uh, you said, could my love and respect for them as human beings lead me to a loving and respectful encounter with their religion as well? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had always been taught, yes, you can respect, you know, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, whoever, you can respect them, you can love them, but you have to hate their religion, yeah. you know, or you have to hate their belief systems. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that and how we move beyond that. Yeah. Well, um, I, I really experienced this in reverse from a Muslim friend. Uh, and I tell the story later in the book. I was having lunch with an imam one day and we got into a talk. Uh, I asked him some questions about his faith. He asked me some questions about mine. And I started talking about he asked me why I loved Christianity. And I, I said, well, I have all kinds of mixed feelings about Christianity. Can I tell you about my love for Jesus? Why I love <laughs> Yeah, Let me clarify. I'm with you there. <laughs> and um I talked about my love for Jesus and I, I, I was, you know, I'd only been talking for a few minutes and he put up his hands and he says, Oh no, 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 no. And I said, what's wrong? Uh, Imam, did I, did I offend you? Did I say something that offended you? He said, Oh no, no, no. He said, I just realized until this moment, I have never heard a Christian say what it means to be a Christian. I've only heard other Muslims tell me what it means to be a Christian. Mm. He said, and I have told other Muslims what other Muslims have told me Christians believe. And now I feel ashamed because now a Christian is telling me what he really believes. And it's different than what I was told. And it's different than what I've told others. Well, wow. Wow. we got into a very deep talk and this might really shock a lot of Christians, but he was stunned to hear me talk about loving Jesus because huh, wow. what Muslim, one of the things Muslims are told that is different about Islam and Christianity is that Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet and you should love a prophet and you should obey a prophet and a prophet is honored by God and should be honored by people. But Christians believe that God killed Jesus and punished Jesus. And so in their mind, if you really loved Jesus, you wouldn't think that God would kill him and, and punish him. You'd think that 
Jesus is good. God would honor him. Can, so can they're, they're rejecting, they're rejecting neo-Calvinism. Then, right? <laughs> and it's <laughs> not Christianity. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, it's probably a form of Augustinianism and yeah. uh, so on. But, but um, I, I just say that to say that we, if we're Christians and if the only depiction you've heard of Islam is either from a, a fellow Christian or from a Muslim who left Islam, then you're going to hear, well, you could say the same thing. What would you think of Catholicism if you only talked to a Calvinist or an ex-Catholic? What would you think of Baptists if you only talked to ex-Baptists? So, uh, you know, in my experience, people who I lots of disagreements with, if I try to understand their experience, I can, I can, eventually see through their eyes why they love what it is they love. And that's, that's what I'm suggesting. Uh, now, look, I, I'm not one of these guys who says, oh, so everything's fine. You know, look, I think there are lots of problems with all of our religions. Absolutely. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity in all its forms. So I'm not one of these guys, oh, everything's fine. I think there are big problems with all of our religions. Uh, but uh, I also think there are enormous inestimable treasures too. Good. Um, Another thing that you quoted in in the form of a question that I'd like to get your response on, you said, when Christians claim that Jesus is the only way, what do they mean? And does that mean that other religions must be opposed as frauds, mistakes, delusions, or distractions? And then you went on to say a little bit later, does sincere faith in the uniqueness and universality of Jesus Christ require one to see others' faiths as false, dangerous, and even demonic? And it seems like the implied answer, of course, is no. But if you could just expound on that a little bit, what do we mean when we say Jesus is the only way? And how is that, how can that be set in any other terms other than an oppositional identity to all other quote unquote ways? Well, well first of all, I mean, uh, that question makes me really want uh, to encourage people to read the book and read the doctrine section because, um, uh, because to say Jesus is the only way um, that takes on meaning based on a whole lot of prior assumptions about the doctrine of original sin, about the doctrine of election, about the doctrine of about atonement related doctrines and and so on, but especially about the doctrine of original sin. And I I have a very important chapter about that. But when we say Jesus is the only way we're whether we know it or not, we're quoting John 14, six. Um, and uh, Ray, I just I just did a 17 city book tour, and uh, in I think 14 of the 17 cities, when we did Q and A, somebody said, "What about John 14:6?" John 14:6 is that big bomb that gets thrown into the into this conversation every time. That's right. Um, and I, several times I told this quick story. If, if uh, you don't mind, I'm messing sure. this up as the lightning round because I'm taking. Uh, oh no 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 no! Take your time. <laughs> but. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking with a Muslim friend of mine. We were standing in a parking lot of a church, actually, uh, of Willow Creek Church, in fact. And um, uh, I said to him, uh, I said, you Muslims have a big advantage when it comes to interfaith relations that, uh, over Christians. He said, what do you mean? What's that? I said, whenever I ask a Muslim about their attitude toward people of other faiths, they always quote the verse from the Quran that says, where God says, I made you different so that you would seek to know one another. I said, that's such a beautiful verse. 
it's uh, it's a it, and it, it just sets people up for a better relationship. Whenever I ask a Christian, they always go John fourteen six. I'm the way, the truth, and life. <laughs> and my Muslim friend just laughed, and he said, "Believe me, Brian." He said there are verses from the Quran that people could quote that would not be so sanguine and so hospitable. <laughs> he said. But that's what you have to realize. He said, um, the reason people quote that verse is because they've been taught to quote it. And you have to ask, are there other verses that could be quoted in the Bible? And why have people been taught to quote John 14, 6? Well, I, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my book, A New Kind of Christianity, a whole chapter that's kind of a reading of John 14, 6. And I wrote a chapter about this in my book, Secret Message of Jesus. It, and there's still more to say about it. But the thing I can say une, unequivocally, John 14, 6 is not about other religions. It has nothing to do with people of other religions. And I know that because of John 14, 5. In John 14, 5, it does not say, and Thomas came to Jesus and said, what about people who've never heard of you or people of other religions? And Jesus said, I am the way. That's not what it says. It's part of a very sophisticated, very complex, very fascinating line of reasoning. It goes back into John chapter 13, where Jesus says, I am going away and you cannot follow. And imagine if you've identified yourself as a follower of Jesus and Jesus says he's going somewhere that you cannot follow. Well, that creates this whole thing. Where is he going? Uh, John, beginning of John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So that where I'm going, you may be also. So I'm going somewhere you can't follow now, but you'll be with me later. And, um, uh, and, and so then Jesus says, and so you know the way. And then Thomas says, <laughs> we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And that's the end when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. So to twist that verse and try to use it to say something about people of other religions, is a, it, it's just... It is so wrong that once you see how wrong it is, you're shocked that it's so commonly used. And I just have to say at that point, the reason why people pick that verse is because it fit in with their prior agenda. And their prior agenda was to show religious supremacy and to delegitimize other religions. Um, so a lot more I could say about that. Uh, but just for fun. You know, it's fun to start asking, well, what is a verse that we should quote uh, right. when people ask, what about what's a Christian attitude toward people of other faiths? Maybe we should go to Romans chapter two. Those without the law will be judged without the law. Um, uh, uh, those with the law will be judged with the law. Uh, maybe we should go to John chapter one. The light that enlightens every person uh, was coming into the world. Uh, my personal favorite uh, and I, by the way, I don't even like quoting a single verse about anything, yeah. but would be to go to John chapter four, uh, that says, beloved, let us love one another mm-hmm. for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God for God is love. Now, what would happen if that was the verse that we memorized and we'd been trained to quote every time somebody said, what should the Christian attitude be toward other religions? I, mm-hmm. Man, you know what? There might be thousands of people who are still who would still be alive, who have mm-hmm. been killed because uh, because of wow. the verse that we learned to quote. So true. So true. Good stuff.
we're going to revisit this in a little bit. We're just kind of going section by section through your book. (laughs) Um, Under the historical challenge, you really break this book up into about three sections and talk about the different challenges that lie before us in really laying the foundation for a non-hostile identity, a strong benevolent identity. And you talk about the historical challenge and you talk about how it's important for us to know our history, which a huge part of our podcast over the last four years has been talking about our history, both not just talking about it, but for us uncovering it and, and mm. really learning ourselves. Gosh, what what does it look like to be a Christian over the last 2000 years? But you talk about how maybe it's really important that we re- revisit the dark side of our history so that we can go forward with that knowledge and maybe uh, into a new way. Talk about the importance of that. Sure. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that Catholics often criticize Protestants about is Protestants act as if we had the first century and then the 16th century and 17th. <laughs> um, you might say a dispensationalist act as if we had the first century and then the 19th century. And, the 1950, right? <laughs> uh, and Pentecostals act as if we had the first century and then the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a lot of centuries in there and there's a lot of good. And I, one of the things I think we have to learn is we've got to get beyond what my friend Richard Rohr calls the dualistic mind that always just wants to either legitimate or condemn. Hmm. Uh, but if we start to understand our, our story as an unfolding religious movement and a set of religious institutions with a real complex and interesting history, then uh, we'll lose some of our naivete about about the identity that we hold today. And when we say the word Christian, we'll have a, a fuller idea of what of the backstory uh, to that to that term. You know, if I think we can see this living in the United States, if we lived in Northern Ireland and we said I'm Protestant or I'm Catholic, there would be some backstory to the word Protestant Catholic. Mm. If we lived in South Africa and we said, I'm Dutch Reformed, uh, well, there would be some backstory. I'm a white Christian, or I'm a black Christian, or I'm a colored Christian. There'd be some backstory to to that. Um, We're amazingly naive about the backstory when we, especially as American Christians, say, I'm a Christian, I'm an evangelical, I'm a Protestant, etc. So we've got backstory that we need to know. And often that backstory involves wrongs that others have done to us, wrongs that we've done to others. And uh, can I give you one quick example? Oh, yeah. Take your time, Brian. Yeah. Absolutely drives me crazy right now because we're having this conversation a week before our presidential election. Um, And a lot of people have heard how uh, the Billy Graham website. uh, I I live in the same town as Franklin Graham. So this has been like, this is huge in our town. Yeah. So, uh, and it probably was Franklin, not Billy, uh, yeah. who, who decided that in order to help uh, Mitt Romney in his presidential run, they should scrub all references to Mormons from, uh, from their website, to Mormons as being a cult from their website. Um, well, what a lot of people don't know is that Billy Graham in 1960 uh, organized Protestants uh, organized everybody he could to oppose JFK because he didn't believe that there should be a Catholic president because a Catholic would take orders from the Vatican. Uh, and now, uh, and now here, uh, these, uh, your 50 
52 years later, uh, evangelicals are supporting a Mormon and a Catholic to run for president. Uh, so there are a lot of ironies uh, out there. And I, I hate to say it, but I, I, it has to be said. White Christians are willing to change their opposition to Catholics and Mormons when a black Christian is uh, so, running for president. Well, and, and, and I'll, I'll just say it here. And uh, Steve and I, my co-host, we, uh, we did a podcast about a week ago that we've actually not made live. It's going to go live in the next few days before the election. But um, we did a podcast talking about the whole Franklin Graham and my, <laughs> my quote-unquote debacle um, that, that happened both on the Pierce Morgan show and in, um, in him visiting Billy Graham's house and that kind of thing. And it just deeply bothers me that it was only, I guess, back in February or March or something like that, that Franklin was so candid about the majority of Christians would not consider Mormons to be Christians. I mean, he actually said that on national TV. And then a few months later, not only is he backpedaling from that statement, but he's removing from the Billy Graham website within hours of being at his house. And to me, it's like simultaneously he's doing that while, um, I remember in that same interview of him talking about Mitt Romney, they continually asked him about the status of Barack Obama's Christianity. And he yeah. refused to acknowledge that Barack Obama w was a Christian. Yes. And that's just, the whole thing's just so deeply troubling to me, not to mention yeah. the idea that there's a 501c3 organization that's out there putting political ads in newspapers around the country in swing states. The whole thing is just, and, and I'll, I'll, in the efforts of full disclosure, Brian, most of our listeners know, but I'm sure you don't. I, I mean, I'm just not political at all. I don't vote. I don't, I just don't get into that. That's just me. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it just deeply bothers me that an, a, an evangelistic organization that would proclaim that they were trying to further the way of Jesus would be so steeped in furthering the way of divisiveness and hostility in our country. You know, um, I know we want to go into other to topics, but it, it's, it, it is troubling. But it's also really interesting, isn't it? If we just step back and say, what is this telling us? And one of the things it might be telling us is that there's this thing called Christian identity, but there's this also this thing called American white conservative identity. Yeah. And, um, and what we may be seeing here is that the American white conservative may in the, at the end of the day be deeper and more important to some people than the Christian identity. And that brings to mind this, or brings back, us back to this idea of strong Christian identity. You know, here the problem might be that these no. folks who think they have such a strong Christian identity, it might not actually be that strong a Christian identity. It may be a really strong white conservative American identity. So anyway, it's just where it, it, this identity thing really gives you a fascinating lens to explore. And it really does. And I, I have to tell you, Brian, in, uh, in this whole conversation, I've had to find myself as one who, who has, was raised in conservative evangelical circles, pastored in a conservative evangelical church, uh, Pentecostal church, um, and kind of came out of that whole mold. It, it is so tempting for me to in the name of eschewing scapegoating violence mm -hmm. towards others to scapegoat the conservatives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am so, it's such a temptation for me 
and and your words um, about how we need to really recognize that it's not necessarily someone's hate, but their love that yeah. causes them to to get into hostility. That's so helpful for me. And even in this issue here, I'm finding myself having to go back and absorb those words again and really remind myself, hey, these aren't bad people. These are people who really think that they're doing God's service. They really think that this is the message God's called them to. And I totally and completely disagree, but I can't, I can't, um, judge them or yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's just, it's really helpful. Your words in, in this issue particularly are very helpful. Um, you talk about the imperialism that's innate in Christianity since its early days, or at least since the three hundreds. Um, can you talk about maybe a little bit about imperialism? And you, you've talked a lot in your books about colonialism. You're one of the few voices, at least for me, that that I've read that's really uh, delved into the subject of colonialism and how that's become such a part of our Christian identity, both in uh, historically speaking and evangelistically speaking to how we do things now. Can you talk a little bit about that and how we can escape sure. that? Sure. So um, th- think about it this way. There are, when, when we want to, when we just imagine human beings living on the planet who are, live under threat. I mean, we're, we know these days we have natural threats of storms and earthquakes and droughts and plagues. Um, but we also have the threat of other people. Um, and if we go back in history, we imagine people who lived in little bands of hunter-gatherers, and they would have territory battles. Who gets access to the fields where the buffalo are, are, are easy to catch, you know? Um, and so there would be violence between groups. Um, well, you can imagine a whole bunch of groups, once especially they start farming, they, they no longer, they, they want to stake out their own land. And you can imagine a group of tribes getting together and saying, okay, we'll take this land, you take that land, you take that land, and we'll have it packed with each other, and we'll elect somebody to be our chief, and then the chief will make sure that we don't get into disputes with each other. And then you can imagine, though, that now what happens is, if there's a famine, you know, a hundred, uh, a big flood washes away the crops a hundred miles downstream, that chief might organize all of his tribes to come up and attack our tribes to steal our food. Mm. So then you could imagine at some point somebody saying, hey, why don't we set up a big chief uh, over all the other chiefs and we'll call that person a king. Mm. And that, that king will rule all of the different tribes and chiefdoms around and we'll make sure that we get along with each other better. Uh, but then, you know, the next thing that will happen, well, what about the next king down the, you know, uh, on the other side of the mountain, we might go to war with him. And when you get the idea, let's have a king who's the king of all the other kings. The mm-hmm. only way to have peace is to have somebody who's in charge of everybody. That's what an empire is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the way the empire tries to get peace and prosperity for itself is by bringing more and more of other kings under its control. And that is the story behind so much of the Bible. You know, you could say that the book of Genesis arises against the backdrop of the Egyptian empire and some other ancient empires and dares to assert that God cares about naked hunter-gatherers 
mm. uh, and gives them dignity and nobility. That the greatest dignity is not to the pharaoh or the emperor, but the greatest dignity is given to the most humble, common person. This is a theme of the whole Bible. Well, religion gets wrapped up in all of this because then the religion of the empire, the religion of the pharaoh, the religion of the emperor, it, you want to impose that on everybody under you. So that you'll then have that level of uh, of unity and solidarity, and you can also see how a tribe that doesn't want to be conquered by an emperor would say, "We're going to hold on to our own beliefs because we refuse to be co-opted to this other regime." So suddenly, you realize that issues like idolatry and and religious syncretism and so on they all have political dimensions and, and uh, economic and social dimensions as well as religious ones. Mm. Mm, so good. Wow. And part of that, that uh, part of that whole imperialistic thing in, in your section on um, the historical challenge was one thing that was so interesting to me, you alluded to it earlier, was the story of Muhammad. And I had kind of had this feeling as I read church history um, and came up to the time of Muhammad, you could really see that it seemed to me at least, and you were the first person I'd actually heard articulate this. It seemed to me that he was almost uh, creating a new stream of Christianity mm-hmm. as a rebuttal or a refutation or a, just in the sense of fleeing from the dominant imperialistic version of Christianity that was being put on him, that he was really by by the Christians in, in the Far East that had went and, and had taken different versions of Christianity uh, and kind of moved away from Rome and the Roman way and the Latin way of doing things and had said, no, we're going to remain faithful to the way that we understand Jesus. It's almost like he came out of that and in his mind was creating a religion in the tradition of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Jesus. Yeah. And that was just such a fascinating thing to me of how maybe Islam was actually the result of imperial Christianity. Yeah. Uh, obviously, a, a Muslim would never want Islam to oh, be sure. reduced to that level. But, sure. you're, but And I don't think you are trying to do that. But I think, I think it, it would help Christians to understand Islam. And I think it would help Muslims to understand Islam. Mm-hmm. And I think it would help Christians to understand Christianity as it is today and Muslims to understand Christianity if we paid a little more attention or a lot more attention to that narrative that you just told. Um, Muhammad's choice in his day, he, I mean, it, we, we minimize what a remarkable thing it was that Muhammad, living in a polytheistic tribal society, comes up with a vision that there's one God and that that is the God who has been revealed through Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I should say Ishmael, uh, Moses, uh, uh, David, uh, Jesus, Mary, Jesus, and so on. I mean, it's remarkable. Um, but when you throw the, the factor of em- empire in there, it really complicates things. Uh, so, yeah, so. yeah. Moving on the the section that, that was next in your book, you talk about the liturgical challenge or how we do church, how, how we do church, how it, um, fosters this sense of hostility. It fosters the sense of us and them and maybe how we can move away from that. And, um, excuse me, you know what? Let me, let me back up a little bit. Let me go to the doctrinal section first. You you talk about uh, the doctrinal challenge in that our doctrines, not that there's anything wrong with our doctrines, but that so many times we frame them in a way 
that is hostile to the other or that excludes the other. Um, and you talk about a lot of these, and, and I don't want to uh, make you go into each one, but if you could maybe give us an example of a doctrine or two um, under that section and how sure. maybe we've misappropriated it and what, sure. what we should do with it. Well, I, really, one of the most important is the doctrine of original sin. I already said something about that. And it, and it, so let, let me, but, but it, it's, it's phenomenally uh, important. And especially because a lot of folks who listen to your podcast have thought about mimetic theory. If, if we were to define original sin uh, as the human impulse to use violence to achieve peace, uh, to achieve peace through domination, uh, that would have really interesting ramifications in how we read the rest of the book of Genesis and the whole Bible. And so the idea would be not that we throw out the doctrine of original sin, but instead of understanding it primarily in Greek philosophical categories, we actually understand it in the categories of the book of Genesis itself, categories that have to do with desire, they have to do with land ownership, Cain and Abel. They have to do with uh, resolving difference. Uh, and they have to do ultimately with genocide and slavery uh, because that's, those are the backdrops of, uh, of the biblical story. So that, that would be an interesting one to talk about. But l- let me just say something about the doctrine of election. Uh, I, I'm especially thinking about that because I've gotten a couple of emails just in the last couple of days from people who've read the book from South Africa. Um, and uh, South Africa and the United States have something in common in that they were both settled uh, uh, in large part by Calvinistic Christians from England, Scotland, and Netherlands more England and Scotland here, although there were quite a few from Netherlands and then more from Netherlands and South Africa. And they brought an idea of election, meaning that God chooses some people and rejects others. They, they bring that idea and it has very plain historical consequences. When the people who saw themselves as chosen came to New England They began a process of dispossessing the native peoples of their land, eventually killing many of them, driving them, making treaties that were broken, driving them farther and farther away, finally herding them into concentration camps that we call uh, reservations. Wow. Mm. Um, And in South Africa, it resulted in a similar pattern. But because the white people stayed in the minority rather than became a majority, uh, it, it ended up in the, uh, in the theology of apartheid. And a lot of people don't know that apartheid was a theological, it was created at a seminary. Uh, I've lectured at that seminary and talked wow. to the professors there. Um, it was created at a seminary and uh, was a theological proposition. Uh, that all, all of those things are related to an understanding that God chooses some to love and rejects others uh, to hate. And they have some Bible verses they can quote. But remember, choosing which Bible verses you quote says as much about you as it does about God. Um, Just as a quick example, one of the verses that they love to quote to defend this is a verse from Genesis. Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. But if you follow that story out a little bit, 
you end up with Jacob and Esau finally having an encounter. And Jacob has treated Esau like dirt. He's ripped him off time and again. And on the day when he finally encounters Esau, Esau displays grace to his, his brother. Uh, the grace that Cain never showed to Abel. Mm. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so now Esau in many ways is in the place of Abel, you know, but he's showing grace. And when Esau, when, when Jacob sees the grace of Esau to him, he says something to this effect. Now I feel I've seen the face of God. Mm. So isn't it ironic in the one who was rejected and declared to be hated that's the one in whom the face of God is manifest. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, we always talk about uh, how Joseph reflects Jesus. Maybe we ought to talk about how Esau uh, reflects wow. Jesus in, in that moment. Um, so all that's to say that uh, I think we need a better understanding of what chosenness means. And if we go back to Genesis 12, the, the original calling of Abraham, Election is not to privilege. Election is to service. Yeah. Uh, I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. I will make you a great nation. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's not an exclusive blessing. It's an instrumental blessing. And I think if we recover that understanding of chosenness, it will really shake up. Uh, it will it'll change the way we behave in the future. Just mm -hmm. one interesting thing. Um, the prophet Amos sees how destructive this idea of calling is. And I believe it's in chapter 9 of Amos. Amos says, so uh, I, you, you Israelites are proud that I called you from Egypt. Well, didn't I call the Ethiopians from somewhere and the Philistines from somewhere? So he reminds them that just because I called you doesn't mean I didn't have a calling for them too. So I, anyway, a lot of good rethinking could happen for our, our doctrine of election. You know, you're, you're really bringing out something in, in what you're saying there that really um, has just been something that's just been quickened in me in the last year. I, I know a, a good part of the book, um, our mutual friend, Derek Flood, you talk about a lot of his uh, insights into how to read the Bible responsibly, which I think is just Absolutely fantastic. And Michael Harden does some of this too, as far as using Jesus as kind of the deconstructive yes. principle through which to read scripture. But you know, what you're suggesting is just so, so right on that it seems like within each of those hostile stories yes. that we read in scripture that would, that would engender a hostility between us and, and the other, that there's a deconstructing principle within each of those stories, whether yeah. it's Joshua and the, and the battle of Jericho, you've got Rahab, the harlot, or yeah. like you said, with Jacob and Esau, you've got Esau giving the faith, being the face of God or the ministry of Jesus. Like the Syrophoenician woman is the one yes. who's got the greatest faith. I mean, it's just, if we follow those stories through, I think the hardest part for us though, Brian, is we've been, we've been given a set of glasses through which to read the Bible and we don't even see the glasses. We yes. don't even know they're there. Yes. So, I mean, this is totally off. You know, I usually have some notes and things, but just as an aside, how do we get rid of those glasses? How do we, w would you say that it's looking through the lens of Jesus or, or how, what, what is your insight into that? Well, one of the best things I think is to, it's not easy to see, you know, as someone wearing glasses, <laughs> you know, it's not easy to even know that you have them. We're so used to looking through them. And um, 
in, in philosophy, they often talk about there being three stages of consciousness or three stages of awareness. There's a pre-critical stage. That's where we basically believe what we've been told and things are what they seem to us to be. Then there's a critical stage where we become aware that we have glasses and that we belong to a community that, and that our assumptions all have vested interests built into them and that our words and ideas have a history, a backstory, as we've been saying. In many ways, everything we've been talking about involves moving from a pre-critical to a critical, critical mindset. And then there's the move to a post-critical mindset where then we move beyond just being critical and to saying, well, what's a better way uh, to see? Um, and, but Ray, I can tell that, you know, you're not, this isn't just an intellectual exercise. You're grappling with this as a moral agent, as a moral human being in this. And I hope uh, as our listeners, uh, you know, do that. One of the things we have to do is go back and say what we've been told the Bible says is really what certain power, almost always powerful white heterosexual men say the Bible says. Mm. And they had vested interest in telling us that that's what the Bible says. Wow. And they had vested interest in spending a lot of money and in telling us it's very simple and it's very obvious. And they had vested interest in telling us to be afraid of anybody who says it differently than they do. Mm. And um, I'm not, I don't want to overemphasize being cynical and suspicious and critical about that, but we better have some amount of uh, critical awareness about it. Mm. And, and then I think once you do, a lot of people then just throw the whole thing away. They just say, I'm done with it. Mm. But if we don't do that and if we stay and linger a little bit longer, I think that's when we start to see a new logic uh, emerge from the text. And uh, I think that's what John was talking about in the Gospel of John when he says in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God, I think he's saying there's this deeper logic, there's this deeper meaning. And if we will allow ourselves to see it, it was made flesh in Christ. And that I do believe, because I'm a Christian, because I love Jesus, and because I, I, I'm experiencing how it works, you know, I, I, I think that that is the, the deeper hermeneutic, if you will. Mm. Yeah, I'm with you. You said this in the book, and this is something I've really, we, we've emphasized on the podcast probably more than anything else. And it's the idea that that it's not so much that Jesus looks like God as it is that God looks like Jesus. That that is the Christian revelation, that God looks just like Jesus. And if you've seen him, you've seen exactly what God looks like. And I tell you, when you apply that to the Bible, you just don't have the same Bible, <laughs> it seems. You just really don't have the same one. Um, you talk, and I'm, I'm just going to briefly mention this one. You talk about the liturgical challenge and, and really how we do, how we really need to change our practice, not just our doctrine and not our mission, but, but also our practice. And there's a lot that could be said about this that's really valuable, but I just, I wanted to just pick your brain a little bit on this particular one, especially for our audience. You talk about in, uh, in teaching what's called the null curriculum. This idea that we teach by not not just by what we say and what we want pupils to get from our active teaching, but from the from the things that we do that we never mention, the way we we set up the tables, the chairs, this kind of thing. And in saying that, it really brought some questions to the fore for me. Um, on this podcast, it's called Beyond the Box, and one of the biggest reasons for that is Steve and I uh, were both former pastors who left the institutional church, and for the last six, seven, eight years have been. 
um, really experimenting on how to do church apart from the institution. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that has gotten me about the null curriculum of the church is while while Jesus called us friends and really emphasized, which you also mentioned in the book, really emphasized this um, egalitarian relationship, this equality, this this mutual, mutuality that Paul also talks about in First Corinthians about how we all have something to contribute. Um, while we get that from both Jesus and Paul, there seems to be this hierarchical thing that goes on in the institution. And it's done not just, I mean, at post-Reformation, we, we heard all about the priesthood of all believers. Yeah. But simultaneously, while we were hearing that, we were still having one man get up every single Sunday. And usually it was a white male mm-hmm. getting up every single Sunday and giving a 45-minute monologue while all 200 or 300 chairs were pointed in that one direction as if he was the go-between between us and God. So to me, part of this idea of the liturgical challenge that you're saying that I'm I'm kind of struggling with is that null curriculum, the idea yeah. that when we walk into a church, all the chairs are pointed the same way. We have the same guy leading worship every Sunday. We have the same person contributing the, the message every Sunday, and it's always a monologue and never a dialogue. Can you talk a little bit about that? Has that been something that maybe that you've noticed as well? And, oh, yeah. and what, where do we go? Because people like us and probably a great majority of our listeners aren't affiliated with an institutional church. What do, what do we do about this? Yeah. Well, you know, your lifetime and mine have been spent with us arguing about the right forms uh, that that would take. Should it be an organ and a piano and a pulpit or should it be a rock band and a soundboard and uh, projection screens? And uh, I mean, you think about the thousands of hours and uh, quarts of blood <laughs> that have been lost yeah. Yeah. on those arguments. And we've had precious little discussion of about the whole system and the null curriculum, uh, as you say. So, yeah, I think it, it, it's, uh, it's tremendously important uh, on, on a very superficial, not a superficial level, but a simple, obvious level. I preached in a church uh, two days ago. It was a great church. I really liked it. It was one of the really nicer churches I've preached in in quite a while. But the first song uh, was... You might know the song, and I'm not putting down anybody, but the the song, it was a very simple song, and we sang it for maybe 12 or 15 minutes. I don't think I'm exaggerating. We went over and over it again, and the chorus of the song is, oh, how he loves us, 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 how he loves us, oh. Ad infinitum. (laughs) And it was good and the people were into it and, and I believe he loves us. So that's great. <laughs> but I thought to myself, what is the null curriculum here? And what does it say about us? Why is it so hard for us to believe that God loves us? Mm. What's going on there? Uh, could it be that, you know, privileged upper middle class, predominantly white evangelical Christians who, whose country uses 50% of the world's military budget, mm-hmm. uh, who are supporting an economic system that's destroying the planet. Could it be that we're trying to convince ourselves that he loves us because deep down inside, if we were to sing that he loves the poor and he loves the birds of the field and the flowers of the, uh, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, that we, we'd have something else going on. And, and so when I got up to preach, I... I was talking about uh, 
Acts chapter 16 and, and God's love for the little slave girl, the, the, the most marginalized person possible, a slave girl in Philippi. And God loved the jailer, you know, the, the, the mid-level bureaucrat in an oppressive regime. And God even cared about the magistrates who needed to be confronted for their injustice and given a chance to behave better. Uh, and um, so then I said, so maybe we had it right earlier today when we were singing, oh, how he loves us. But we just have to remember that the us is not just us. Mm. It's not just us Christians. It's us human beings. It's the rich and the poor, the Buddhist and the Muslim and the Christian and the straight and the gay. And maybe yeah. if we sing, oh, how he loves us with a smaller us, uh, then we're, uh, we're not really getting the gospel. You know? And I was so pleased because you, you'll appreciate this. It was a church with a charismatic background. And I got a lot of amens at that moment. Wow. So, uh, and I think they were sincere. So all that's to say that um, I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on there in the null curriculum uh, from how we set up the chairs and so on to, uh, to what's hidden in the word us <laughs> when yeah. we sing a, a praise chorus. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You, you wrap up the book really talking about the missional challenge. And to me, this is one of the more challenging ones. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Where, um, you know, as a conservative evangelical that or is raised, I've really departed and I don't even like the label evangelical for myself anymore. But as someone that's been raised in that mold, the missional challenge is probably the toughest one because we've had, we, we've had something steeped in us so much that we've been told exactly what the great commission and evangelism and all those things look like. And in your, in your book, you talk about the missional challenge just in a whole different way. One of the ways you lead off with that is talking about subversive friendship, transgressive friendship. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe tell us an example or an experience that you had with that? Sure. Sure. So um, <clears throat> when one of the things we know about Jesus is that he was called a friend of sinners he didn't just preach to sinners, he ate with them. And that was scandalous. Now, uh, we see the same thing with Peter. Peter went through a big crisis in Acts chapter 10. Would he eat in the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion? Uh, and so again and again, the call to follow Christ is the call to an encounter with someone like the Samaritan woman or the Syrophoenician woman or the Ethiopian eunuch uh, or the leper, to touch people you're not supposed to touch, to eat people, eat with people, not eat people, <laughs> to eat with people you're not supposed to eat with, uh, to, um, to befriend people that are not normally befriended, most scandalously expressed in Jesus' command to love our enemies. Mm, mm. Um, and um, uh, my, my gosh, in, in the world of conservative evangelicals, Who's the greatest enemy of an evangelical? It's got to be a liberal mainline Protestant. You know? yeah. um, or maybe these days it's a Muslim. Or it, when I was a kid, it was a communist. Um, so what would happen if we said, in order to be faithful to Christ, I have to cross the road and make contact with and get to know and show respect with and eat with and befriend uh, someone who's different? What if... There is no such thing as valid Christian ministry uh, if that's not happening. Hmm. Uh, and um, so that to me is one of our one of our great challenges. And you know hmm. something interesting about 
about eating with people. You can, you can preach at someone against their will, <laughs> uh, but you can't eat with someone against their will. Mm. You know, they have to be willing to invite you to their table. Mm. And so that involves a, a, a very different kind of relationship and one that I think we, uh, we would be much more faithful Christians if we were committed to learning. Now you, you talk in the book, you, you call that being uh, having withness and yes. not just witness, which I think is just a beautiful way of saying it. Um, in the book, you talk about teams of unlikely, unlikely people coming together, not in the name of the Christian or any other religion, but seeking to walk in the way of Jesus by learning and proclaiming and demonstrating the way of liberation. And just as I was thinking about that, about that quote, in thinking about teams of people that are coming together from various religious backgrounds, the question automatically arises. And this is something that I've been thinking about for months now, Brian, and I've tried to hash this out with several different people from people like Brad Jerzak and Kevin Miller and just some of these guys and really trying to think about what this means. Does one have to believe in an orthodox view of Jesus in order to be considered a disciple of Jesus? For instance, I think about someone like Gandhi, you know, who many people would say that he looked more like Jesus than, of course, the British Christian, quote unquote, Christian empire that was oppressing him and his people. So I guess one of my questions that, that arises is, do you have to really believe in Jesus as Lord to be considered a disciple? It's almost like some people fall on the side of believing and some people fall on the side of action and social justice. Yeah. But it seems like to me that, that both are necessary. What, what's your, what's your thoughts about that? Well, um, you know, the, the answer to your question is it just depends who you ask. Um, you know, if you ask one of our good Calvinist friends, uh, you, you know, they would say the only way you can be considered a Christian is if you're one of the elect. And that involves generally uh, uh, believing in penal substitutionary atonement theory and so on and so forth. Um, uh, so if you ask them, no, you cannot be a disciple. Um, uh, uh, if, if you're asking me, uh, and that's who I'm asking. (laughs) Yeah. If you're asking me, it's just, it's just not the way I think. Um, I I want to, uh, you know, I've helped, I don't know, I'm sure hundreds of people become followers of Christ through the years. When I was a pastor, the church I pastored over half the people, uh, were people who, did not have a commitment to Christ before they came. And so, um, you know, I, I know a lot about, about this and I'm, I'm all for helping everybody I can to become a follower of Christ, but just, uh, two day, two days ago, I was with a, a Jewish lawyer who I'm involved in a social justice project with. And um, we had a long drive and had a long talk. And uh, this Jewish lawyer started telling me about her encounters with Christians, some of which have been very good and some of which just made my hair stand. Oh, not my hair stand, I mean, but. <laughs> You've you know. got about as much to stand as I do, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, but it was just, it was just chilling. She, she was helping a woman uh, in great need and the woman took her to her church and the preacher said, if you die tonight, 
within four minutes, you'll be standing before the just judgment seat of Christ and you will be sent to hell. <laughs> and wow. all, all she wanted to know is, how did he know it was four minutes? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, here she's helping this woman and the woman now wants to return the favor by bringing her to church. And then, you know, she's just told you're going to go straight to hell because you're Jewish. Wow. Um, and, um, but as we talked, uh, it, it, here this woman is involved following the way of Christ, working with me and a bunch of other followers of Christ to help poor and needy people, you know. And uh, so what I want to do with someone like her is I, I don't want to try to get, sign them up for the Christian religion. I just want to help her overcome the obstacles in her own faith and her relationship with God. And I want to affirm the great things she's doing for the poor and um so it's funny when you see the gospel as being the gospel of the kingdom of God and not this, this other thing that evolved in Christian history and especially American frontier history, um, uh, then it's funny. That question just doesn't come up. I, I, I want to help every person I can to become more of what God wants them to be. And, uh, uh, and, and I, you know, uh, and uh, frankly, sometimes I want to say to them, please don't affiliate with the Christian religion. That'll just take you farther afield, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, we, we've got one more. I'm going to go down. I feel like I've I feel like in some ways I've had the same question in, in several different yeah. <laughs> ways of stating it. But it just keeps coming out up throughout the book. Um, and. Uh, so this will be the last time I'm throwing this kind of question at you. <laughs> but you quote Samir Salmanovich as saying, we should abandon religious supremacy. Um, and I understand that I understand that we don't want to act as if we've got all the answers nailed down or, you know, that we've got it all figured out or whatever. But isn't there a sense in which by naming Jesus as Lord, that we willfully express his supremacy above all others? And I guess what really what I was thinking about is you talk a lot about Philippians 2 and the idea of kenosis, which is just... I think beautiful and, and and really should be the center of our Christology. But that same Philippians two passage goes on to talk about how Jesus has been given the name above every name and that eventually everyone's going to bow and confess him as Lord, you know, as the Supreme Lord. So how can we maintain that Philippians two supremacy of Christ identity um, and the idea that Jesus, the, the universality of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, this kind of thing, while not being hostile and and not really feeling that there's a sense of superiority yeah. with Jesus. Yeah, okay. It's a great question. And referring to Philippians 2, there couldn't be a better place to refer to. So I pull out my Bible here. And that's a well-worn Bible for our people that can't see this, I just got to say. <laughs> it's it kind of a, a yeah, it's, it's an old Brian faithful. actually reads his Bible, so. <laughs> I really do. And, um, but... I'm going to misread the Bible right now, okay? (laughs) Okay. How about this? I'm going to start in Philippians 2, and I'm going to really, I'm going to try to render this text the way we actually behave, not the way what it actually says. Here it is. Um, Make my joy complete by dividing from everybody who doesn't see things the way you do, by refusing to love people who don't agree with you, by dividing and breaking fellowship with people who don't uphold your standards of truth, follow your ambition and don't worry about conceit uh, and consider yourself as being more right and correct than others. Hmm. 
Uh, don't look to the interests of others. Focus on your own agenda and have the attitude of Jesus Christ, who, being in nature God, refused to be dishonored and to stoop below the highest place, who killed every challenger who insulted him, who threw into jail and excommunicated anyone who did not properly understand him, mm. who put to death people who uh, stubbornly refused to submit to his doctrine because of his invincible character and courage and willingness to kill all who opposed him. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. If that, that is what we act as if the text says when we mm. practice religious supremacy. Mm. But it says exactly the opposite. The reason we call Jesus Lord is because he's the one person in human history who did not demand to be called Lord. Mm. He's the one person in history who made himself a servant. He's the one person in history who, who did not consider uh, himself as better than others, but considered others as better than himself, who didn't look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of in others. So this to me, the fact that just like we quote John 14, 6, the way we quote those verses of Philippians 2, it's almost like we've been brainwashed to think that we should let those words even cross our lips with the kind of supremacy that we uh, typically portray. Mm. So what what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord when when uh... When Paul says that every knee will eventually bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord, what is he saying there, do you yeah. think? Well, first of all, if Jesus really is the image of God, then the last thing he means is that God's going to stick his foot on the neck of every person and shove them down to the ground and say, admit yeah. it, you know, like yeah. say uncle, we're right, you're wrong, you infidel bastards. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just so inconceivable that that's what it would mean. But that's what I've heard a lot of preachers say. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I, I guess this is this is where I'm coming from. Just let me just nuance it so I don't yeah. send you far afield. Um, people on this podcast know that that uh, Steve and I both have really embraced the idea of ultimate reconciliation or Christian universalism. Um, they know that we're not at all talking about um God sending people to hell or eternal punishment. They they you know we've we've embraced the way of nonviolence. Um, some people think we've gone crazy, <laughs> but we've, we've really, we're really on board there. I guess my thing is, is we're still at a place of going in the end, the, it's still the idea of Christian universalism for us, not the idea of universalism. And I don't mean that. I don't, I hope I don't mean that in a, in a way that would, um, be antagonistic to uh, to people sure. of other religions, sure. but we still look at it as the way that God the way that God saves the world yeah. is through Jesus yeah. and that everyone will eventually be there. And, and that, that knee will bow and that tongue will confess willfully, not against, yeah. you know, not against their will. But in saying that it almost, it, do you think that that's religious supremacy? Would yeah. you say that that's, I, I, guess I that's would, I would, if it was anybody else that we were talking about, except Jesus, but who is Jesus? He's the one who washed the disciples feet. He's the one who let people hate him and kill him and crucify him and reject him. And so the victory of someone like that, the victory of a victim mm. is 
antithetical to the victory of a victor. Mm. And so mm. to say that the victim, the one who's killed and put on a cross, that everyone will ultimately say he was right. What that means is they will ultimately reject their non They will reject their violence mm. and they will ultimately say, no, the nonviolent one was right. The loving mm. one was right. The peaceful one was right. And I don't think that will mean that they'll say Christianity was right because Christianity has been such a mixed bag. Sure. You know, they'll say, but, and it won't even be the point because if you really believe as you do that God, that, that the way God judges is that, that God's judgment is one part of God's salvation. The judgment doesn't mean God gives up on somebody. Judgment is a restorative justice. Yes. Um, if you believe that, then, all that's saying is that this way of love, well, here we come back to John 14, 6. This is why I, I, when I said before that I don't think the right answer is a weak and uh, a benign faith, I, I, I want to say that uh, when, when we say no one comes to the Father but by Jesus— I don't think we're saying no one comes to the Father except through the Christian religion. That's ridiculous. Absolutely. Totally but agree. I think we're saying you don't come to the Father by driving an airplane into towers, and then the Father will reward you with 76 virgins or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We don't say that you come to the Father by keeping the law and having all the right doctrines, and everybody who doesn't doesn't come to the Father. No. To come by Jesus means you have the way of Jesus, which is the way of love, the way of forgiveness, the way of reconciliation, the way of peace. And um, so, so maybe that I get back to that John fourteen six in that way to say the one that we in the end confess is Lord is the one who overturns all forms of human supremacy. Mm. It's mm. the it's the King, the Lord who washes the feet of his disciples. It's the one who is in, uh, who doesn't consider equality with God something to grasp, but is about letting go. And of course, what this does is it reveals to us that the character of God is actually has been grossly misunderstood by uh, the religions of the world. That the character of God is the character of self-giving, the character of emptying, the character of serving, and. Uh, and that is, but you know what, um, Ray, that takes us back to Genesis 1. The nerve to say that God makes naked hunter-gatherers in God's image. Mm. And that the story doesn't start with a king or, or with Donald Trump or with whoever else, you know. But the story starts with the humblest person. That's where God dwells. Isn't mm. that amazing? It is. It is. And, you know, in saying that, the where the story starts... Uh, Michael Harden really helped me understand that the story ends with that same lamb. Yes. That, you know, it's that the line is the, the, our back is turned on the line. And the only one we see in the book of revelation is the lamb, that that's where we end. It's so beautiful. Brian, uh, that's good stuff. Golly, you're really helping me here. (laughs) Um, Just, just in wrapping up, I I just want to ask you just a couple of things as far as it's been six weeks since your books come out. Um, and I know I was at wild goose festival with you and a lot of books were given out there. So a lot of people have had a chance to read your book, even ahead of the September 11th release date, just out of curiosity, what, 
first of all, I guess what's the response been to the book? And then just a couple other follow-up questions. What would you, of the critiques that maybe you've received or, or the, the emails you've gotten, the questions you've been asked, what would you say is the most valid critique you've heard of your book that you went, gosh, they're right. I missed it. And the last question is if you, I'm throwing a lot at you at one time. Sorry. (laughs) If you had a chance to go back and write your book again, would you nuance something? Would you add something or would you change something? That's a great question. Okay. Uh, I, I am really sad to say this, uh, Ray, but, uh, my last five or six books have not had a serious response. They haven't had a serious critique. That's dumbfounding, bro. <laughs> I mean, they've had name calling. They've had insults. They've had, uh, you know, the same different test. But in terms of somebody saying, well, you know, you did this reading of Acts chapter 16, and I think it's invalid for these reasons. It just hasn't happened. I, wow. I mean, I haven't seen it. Wow. Um, you know, a, a, some guy wrote like a 60 page uh, uh uh, critique of a new kind of Christianity. So two books ago, uh, and I read most of it and it was just basically saying he's wrong because he's disagreeing with what we've always said about this. Um, and you know, so if there's, if there, all they can do is say it doesn't match what we were taught or it doesn't match what we accepted. All all it tells me is that they're, they haven't given it a serious, they, they haven't been able to imagine the possibility that I might be right mm-hmm. and then to enter into a different paradigm and show problems with the paradigm or whatever. So I, I, I'm sure that sort of thing could be done. I, I'm aware of several weaknesses in the book, but um, I, I haven't seen much more so far than uh, mockery and insult and uh, you know, I, I guess that's more where I where I was curious because I've noticed. You know, I mean, there's so many, there's so many people that re- really, for years, Brian, seem to just read your books simply so that they can tell their flocks to stay away and and have a few sound bites. And you know, yeah, I I don't have any respect for that. I guess my question is more: Have you have you had anyone that is probably more on a level of reading your book for the purpose of really understanding yeah. and really digesting that? That so, you would say. So yeah, so I, on that way, they're, they're like, for example, I think I, I either just posted it on my blog or I will in a day or two, but somebody wrote to me and said, you know, you do a good job of talking about post-colonial critique, but you only mention male post-colonial theologians. You, you ought to include some of the uh, feminist liberationist uh, uh, theologians. And that's a great point. Yeah. That is a great critique. So, yeah. so, so I, I receive lots of critiques like that that aren't so much saying you're wrong as saying, Hey, your argument could even be better if you know, you did, if you included this. So yeah, yeah. There, there've been things like that, but I will tell you the one thing, and uh, this is probably a good place to wrap it up. The, the one thing I wish I had made clear, you know, it, it, in the book, they ended up changing the actual structure because I, I had four sections, a, the historical challenge, the doctrinal challenge, the liturgical challenge, and the missional challenge. And I, I really should have had five um, because the fifth would be, it's sort of the fifth and the first, but it would be the spiritual challenge. And mm. by the spiritual challenge, I, I need to deal with issues like the posture of the heart and things like what Richard Rohr calls, calls non-dual seeing and so on. But what's interesting about that is that really was the previous book that I wrote. It was called Naked Spirituality. Yeah. And Naked Spirituality talked about going through four stages, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, 
and harmony. And in many ways, that reaching that spiritual state of harmony uh, is the other piece of the equation. And, you know, in some ways, it, I, I guess I assumed it was clear because that had been my most recent book. And, uh, but I wish I would have made that more clear. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Great, great stuff. Wow. Guys, you got to go get the book. That's all I can say. <laughs> and we'll wrap up from there. Thank you so much. Wow. That was a great conversation. I really hope you guys enjoyed this because it has meant a lot to me and it is really helping to clarify for me just really what our relationship is to be with people of other religions, of other faiths. Brian, thank you so much. I just can't thank you enough for being on the podcast, for letting me pick your brain and letting me pick your heart and just really taking the time to let us go in depth uh, on the concepts that you've covered in this book. I just really, really appreciate it. You just don't know how much it's meant to me to be able to take this time with you. And this book has just been such a catalyst in my life um, and has made me dig much, much deeper in really rethinking how I relate to people of other faiths and, and of no faith at all. Um, I, so many of the books I've read since I read Brian's book way back in February, March have been really surrounding this issue. And Brian has really driven me to look way more into what I think about the message of Jesus and, and how that's to be conveyed to the world. Um, so Brian, thank you. Thank you a million times. Thank you. Really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I look forward to many more conversations and to the thoughts that are going to continue to come from your heart and from your pen. I just look forward to them. And I know many of the rest of us do too. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to the Beyond the Box community, thank you guys. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to these podcasts, to really have an open mind and an open heart, and just to um, just your thought-provoking questions and and your the, the things that you convey in conversation with Steve and I. You guys have meant so much to me. I just really appreciate you guys taking the time to interact with us, and um, you guys spur me on to love and good works. You guys spur me on to growth in my relationship with Jesus. So I just can't thank you enough for that. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation that's going to come from this podcast. I really want to hear your thoughts, your questions, your disagreements, your um, ideas surrounding this episode. So please connect with us. I really look forward to hearing from you. You can do that by going to Facebook. That's probably the best place um, where we have the most extended conversations about the podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash beyond the box. And that is just a great community of listeners that you can interact with. You can um, put anything you want to on any episode. You can actually listen to the episodes on our Facebook page, but you can also just start a new thread with your own thoughts, your own ideas, things we haven't covered on the podcast that maybe you want to talk with a group of open-minded people about. Um, it's just an awesome place to hang out. So I just want to encourage you to do that. If you're not on Facebook or if you just want to go over to our website, that's, an, that's another great place to go. Um, you can go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com and we've got all of our episodes there that you can listen to, you can comment on, you can disagree with, you can yell at the computer screen, whatever works for you. <laughs> Please feel free to do that. Um, you can also go at the top of the page. There's an idea submission link. You can click that link and leave uh, an idea for a future episode that you'd like us to see or maybe a person that you want to see on the podcast. I want to encourage you to do that. I really appreciate the ideas that you guys have submitted. 
Um, and while you're at the website, if you look on the right-hand side of the homepage, you'll see a Call Me widget, where if you click that and you type in your name and phone number and hit Submit, our answering service will call you back so that you can leave that comment or that idea submission um, in an audio file that will be sent to us. Um, and those those are really helpful, too, because... Maybe you're not at a computer right now. Maybe you're on the treadmill and you've got your cell phone beside you or you're at work and you want to take a break or you're driving down the road and you want to pull off on the shoulder. Please pull off the shoulder before calling. (laughs) If you want to do that, you can also call us directly on that number. The number is 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. We really look forward to hearing from you there. If you want to subscribe to our Twitter feed, you can do so by going to twitter.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. And once again, I cannot heap enough accolades on Brian. Brian, really appreciate your heart. Really appreciate your time. And just want to thank you for taking the time to do this conversation once again. I hope everybody has a great week. Until next time, this is Ray, and this is Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box.